Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a music discovery podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and artists from around the world. My name is Zach Lubitin. This week on the show, my conversation with a soulful LA-born and bred songwriter and freaky talented pianist, organist, and sax assassin with a silky voice that seems to transport listeners to a soft-focused, deeply romantic R&B-tinted time of FM radio gold, Joey Dosick. Now, we were going to air this yesterday, but this week has been a tough one for everybody who loves great songwriters. First, we lost one of my all-time heroes, Bill Withers, and then last night, we got word that John Prine lost his battle with that cruel COVID-19 virus. Just as he was enjoying his late-life resurgence, John will no longer grace us with classics like Hello In There, Angel From Montgomery, or Paradise, songs that feel as a part of the American sonic fabric to me as the national anthem. And if you look closely, there is something oddly connected between Bill Withers and John Prine's music. They both debuted quietly in 1971. Bill was still installing toilets on airplanes, and John was still delivering mail for the Postal Service not far from where I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And if there is a common thread through their music for me, it's that they were both workmen. They never tried to show off. And maybe it was their humble directness. They trafficked in pure, unadorned truth-telling and songwriting. Soulful, simple, and devastatingly resonant songs that transcended music era's styles and genres. You hear Ain't No Sunshine or Grandma's Hands, and they are 1 minute and 58 seconds long. 1 minute and 58 seconds of truth. And maybe there is something about waiting to release your best work until you are ready. Until you're a grown man. And after you've seen some things, and had your heart broken, and worked crazy jobs doing crazy things. My guest this week, Joey Dosick, is just now coming to people's consciousness in his 30s, with his label debut, Inside Voice, feeling like it could have appeared right there in 1971, sandwiched nicely between titans. I first met Joey when I was a mop-top, starry-eyed teenager, playing in blues rock bar bands, and writing plays, and making a fool of myself in Shakespeare productions in college at the University of Michigan. After moving out of the dorms, I lived with my shaggy bandmates in one ragtag 400 bucks a month house, and Joey and Theo Katzman and other folks who would one day create Wolfpack lived up the street, and they were always the slightly younger, offensively more talented, gifted as hell jazz school yin to our sweaty rock and roll yang. And the beautiful thing about the music community in Ann Arbor back then is that we all mixed together somehow. Joey and Theo sometimes joining our band and members of our band joining theirs for a free jazz freakout at Canterbury House or The Blind Pig or in beer-soaked basement house parties that went wall-to-wall -wall with dancing bodies. Something that now, in our forced separation as humans during the COVID-19 shutdown, seems quaint at best and dangerous and irresponsible at worst. 
Yes, it is easy to make fun of those roving hordes of young people who up until a week ago were cramming beaches and boardwalk bars from the Florida Panhandle to Miami, putting my snowbird parents in St. Pete at risk with their defiant, this doesn't affect me boozy bombacity. But wait a second, if I was 19 and the government was telling me I couldn't play my music and hang out with my new soulmate friends who just came into my life like a miracle, would I have rebelled too? Maybe. There was something special, though, about that brief, beautiful time in Michigan when anything and everything was possible. And that defiant, genreless cross-pollination between polished composer kids in the jazz school and self-taught, rough-around-the-edges, high-energy bar band boys like me who sold their classical violins for Fender P basses, all of that was the seed that began my journey in the Dust Bowl revival. And for Joey, it was in that ramshackle house on Catherine Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where Joey began his journey in that certain funk supergroup that you cool kids might have been listening to right before turning this on. Indeed, many listeners may have learned of Joey's many talents as part of the inner circle of that DIY future funk ensemble Wolfpack, led by trickster curator-composer Jack Stratton, who went from making goofy viral videos about funk and its history and recording an album of total silence that scared the shit out of streaming giants like Spotify after it rocketed the band to international notoriety and independent financial success, to crowdfunding a series of hit records that are so beloved they propelled them to sold-out tours in an unprecedented sold-out show a few months ago at Madison Square Garden. All of this happening to a band with no record label and no manager taking huge cuts away from them. They are literally a music industry miracle. Can you tell I'm just a little bit jealous of those guys? Well, I was super grateful that I could finally catch up with two members of that Wolfpack universe, Joey Dosick today, and on tomorrow's episode, the Cheshire Cat of Slippery Pop Rock and Roll, Theo Katzman, who used to be the backup drummer in my college band, The Midnight Special. But now, he's a show-stopping frontman himself, guitarist, drummer, singer, and whirling dervish of hooks, who sells out shows around the country, and sadly, he just put out a new record and had to stop his new album release tour short, as the entire touring industry is at a standstill. Everybody had to go home. The concert business, and you know what? The entire world as a whole has been shut down since early March. So here's what we're gonna do. Today, we're gonna feature the episode where I talked to Joey Dosick right before this all went down, and tomorrow, we will bring you the first crosstown conversation I've had with Theo Katzman, because we are not legally allowed to be breathing on each other and intimately around one mic as we usually do. And if Terry Gross can do it like this, you know what? We can too. Look, if there's one thing I can take away from this week where we lost some all-time greats like Bill Withers and John Prine, it's that there is a new wave of great artists coming. And in a way, Joey Dosick combines the honest earnestness of Prine's best work with Withers' church-flavored down-home groove. And Joey is so gifted at creating this shimmering old-school sound, it makes me grateful I can listen to music that takes me out of this current darkness into something with a little more golden hour light and sweetness. So. Remember, if you want to help support bands and artists out of work right now for many months to come, buy some vinyl, buy some t-shirts and posters on their websites, and if you really want to be a sweetheart and help my group Dust Bowl Revival, we've been making some really cool videos while in quarantine. I spent all day today annoying my neighbors doing a prime cover outside in the sun. And you can donate to our gang Dust Bowl Revival by going to Venmo at Dust Bowl Revival. It's that simple. Anything helps. So without further ado, I bring you the soulful keys killer, a transporter of sound, Joey Dosick. Fourth quarter, baby. It's not over, baby. 
Joey Dosick. I'm from Los Angeles, California. Uh, I'm a singer-songwriter. I'm a basketball podcast producer, and uh, I still reside in Los Angeles, and we're here right now. Growing up here, do you feel like the LA that you know when you were a kid, is it still here, or has it completely been rearranged? Well, the LA I knew as a kid was like very partially sheltered. I grew up in the valley. So where I, in the valley? I grew up in Northridge. Okay. The North Valley. The epicenter of the quake. Oh yeah. We I was there. Yeah. It was a seven pointer. They claimed it was a six point nine, but that was only the insurance companies were trying to keep it under really? a certain threshold. So that yeah, so that it would it would end up um paying out less. Was your house damaged? Oh yeah. We moved out of our house for a year. Shit. And we uh, we spent a couple nights in our car because it was just the house was messed up. Didn't want to go in. When there. everyone was probably trying to find somewhere to stay. It was it was weird. Yeah, you couldn't use the water. Um, and it's like you know it wasn't like you know I, it wasn't as if um, I grew up without means you know. But we were still out there sleeping in our cars. It was really it was kind of a great equalizer in that way. But I mean I guess not. You know I still was privileged, but. That moment when the quake hit, were you in bed? Where I was in bed. Yeah. It was 4.20 a.m. on Martin Luther King Day, 1994. Right. I had the day off from school. My sister ran to my room. Uh, my older sister, she was eight years older. She is eight years older. The bookshelf in my room fell over and barricaded me. And so my sister like came in, helped me get over this bookshelf we went we sat under the door my dad quick thinking ran downstairs to turn off the gas oh. stepped in a bunch of broken glass that's what they say you you like never you shoes you never think to put shoes on with the glass you gotta you gotta put shoes on uh and then we came upstairs and and uh we had a little radio we put the radio on we just you know i just it was so surreal such a bizarre thing that happened do you feel like people on the other side of the country who see California in a certain way both sort of romanticize and villainize the experience here? Because I feel like a lot of friends in New York and the Midwest, there's this perception of L.A. as this traffic-choked, superficial wasteland where there's no real culture and there's no real downtown energy. You know? Right, right. I guess, you know, the L.A. culture that everyone makes fun of, the kind of stereotypical, like, to Hollywood yeah. kind of, I'm out here promoting myself you know, vibe, I, I, 
oftentimes I see it as being the personality of people that aren't actually from LA because so many people come out here to be in entertainment, to yeah. be in a kind of Hollywood industry. Right. And so oftentimes, as someone who grew up here, it's very easy for me to just kind of like project my hate for that reputation upon yeah. the transplants, you know? Well, I find myself as, you know, this is my home now, so I yeah. find myself as a new Angelino, sure. constantly defending my new hometown, but also realizing that there's this jealousy too, yeah. right? We're sitting here in perfect sunshine. It's nice. In January. Someone out I'm in there, my it's t-shirt. Nice. It's nice. And there's a sweetness to this life here. Yeah. That I would say like, well, come out here and spend a couple of weeks and yeah. then talk sure. trash. Yeah, sure. You there's know? and and yeah, you'll you'll find actual human kindness out here. You'll find community. I mean, and we're not without our flaws. I mean, the price of living out here is fucking insane. It's yeah. tough. It's tough. So, you know, we, we're we not without our scars. We have a, we've had a fucked up LAPD, you know. Yeah. Uh, the city is segregated. Um, it's, uh, it's complicated. But, like, very much like a city like New York, I think what makes LA special is that pretty much anything you're looking for, you can find. Mm. Pretty much, except for good Caribbean food. Other than that, we're kind of throwing it down. It's amazing Cuban food. Okay, okay. Cuban food, but I'm talking about like people want no Jamaican, Jamaican patties. They want like their doubles. They want their, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So you, as a local boy, and as a basketball fiend, it's true. We taped this on a pretty somber day in <laughs> it's LA. Weird. Um, it's weird. Sad out here. It's weird. We, you know, got the news yesterday that Kobe Bryant died unexpectedly at 41. Lost his daughter in the crash as well. And tell me about sort of how basketball has sort of infiltrated your soul and your music and how this is affecting you right now. I mean, how surreal. It's very surreal to just hear you say that. Yeah. You know, I mean, this being like, you know, a taped program, just like you reading it off like a yeah. KPCC news reporter or something. It's, it's, that that in itself is bizarre and and still won't sink in for a few days. I think um, the, the yesterday was the the biggest sports day in the history of L.A., a city that has sort of like seen a lot of big sports moments. Mm -hmm. And yesterday was was so big because it transcended sports on so many levels. Um, I. I grew up having Magic Johnson be my favorite player. Mm -hmm. um, I was born in 1986, and he announced that he was retiring in 1991. Um, I was a basketball junkie at that age, like really little. Uh, it might be hard to believe, but I, I was really all, all in. And so it, it actually did affect me very uh, profoundly, even at a young age when Magic retired. Because I just, all I knew is that my hero was sick mm -hmm. and he was never going to play again, you know. And, and we had no concept of what AIDS really was. He was going to die. 90s. It yeah. was a death sentence. Yeah. I was there at his retirement, and it's the only time, one of the only times I, I, first time I saw my godfather cry. 
Mm. You know, a big six seven dude saw mm. him cry because we all just thought it was a funeral. Yeah. And so I grew up having that Magic Johnson school of basketball, sharing the ball, joy, elevating your teammates. That has always been, um, you know, the gold standard for me. It's one of the reasons that I love LeBron James so much because mm. I sort of. LeBron's very different from Magic. You know, he's he's a little shadier in certain ways, but that's the style of play that LeBron brings, which is why I'm such a big fan. But Kobe Bryant came to Los Angeles in 1996, and he was 17 years old, and he was getting driven around. He couldn't sign his contract. Mm -hmm. Like, he had to have his parents sign his contract. And he barely played that first year, even though he was dying to get out there. You and people were pissed it. that Vladi Divac got sent out. Yeah, I I was hype on Kobe because I remember like just being young and and like reading about him in Sports Illustrated and and you know Shaq was coming in so it was like we don't need Vlade like yeah it's gonna be all good, um, but uh, Kobe like in looking back on it was the first player that I really got to see you know first profound sports figure. Uh, in Los Angeles that I truly got to see his entire journey. Mm. Like I got to see the 17-year-old all the way to I was at his last game. Um, you, went, you you were at the game where I he was scored 60. 60? Yeah. That is still one of the most amazing sports feats that I've ever witnessed. It was incredible. It was, it was, no one, no one expected it too. It was sort of like, let's, because he started the game off playing horribly. Like he was doing the Kobe thing, like hero ball, shooting up like bricks yeah and then it was like oh, let's hope he could just you know have a some kind of hold some kind of self-respect ease here. him out into the sunset he was like blowing the place up into the sunset yeah oh totally totally he was uh like yeah he he shot up the place uh he's the closest for me to Michael Jordan yeah. in in my lifetime with that yeah. sort of single-minded assassin mentality you know you, again, not like LeBron, who was sort of into more of the sharing flow. He was like, I'm going to take over, get the hell out of my way. I think he was yeah. crazier than Jordan, I, which is crazy to say, you know? Like, yeah. I think Jordan had enough foresight to be like, I'm going to put some, to use a musical term, com compressors on yeah. my game. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I'm going to be smart about this. Kobe was like, I'm going to be firing off the dumbest shots all the time, yeah. and it's, I'm gonna make a bunch of them. I'm gonna miss most of them. I'm gonna make some of them. It's gonna blow your mind. Well, Jordan also had the, the sort of sparkling smile and the be like Mike Gatorade thing, and you know there was no like I want to be like Kobe. It was sort of like Kobe <laughs> is on an island by himself, destroying people, for his own benefit, but also winning championships for your favorite team. Right, yeah. right. I will say, yeah. So Mike has the I want to be like Mike, but right. what Kobe's legacy um uh to just like standard basketball things is anytime you're gonna shoot something like into like like paper into the trash can like you'll say kobe okay so he's got that <laughs> okay he got he's got that he sort of infiltrated the culture there he also um on one of this uh destiny's child say my name remixes he okay. also like has a rap verse on one of the say my name remixes so he's got that too so your song "Game Winner" obviously has sort of snuck its way into various basketball arenas, and, and I think probably different sports too, right? 
It was on a uh, yeah. It was on a um, a Premier League playlist. Okay. Which I was really into. I was like, wow. Okay. Like, great. Let's go. The game winner can also be a goal. Yeah, I, I thought it could also be a um, a field goal. You know, a game winning field goal. Yeah. I don't know. What, like football. Was That's there a specific basketball memory or a moment from from your life that first inspired that song? It was inspired by playing basketball and tearing my ACL in my left knee. Mm. I was playing pickup ball. I tore my ACL. When was this? This was uh, 2015. Mm. And I ended up having... Is that what D-Rose did? Yep. That's yeah. what D-Rose did. Exactly. It's The injury that happened to me is the exact same thing that happened to Clay Thompson. Except I wasn't like dunking on somebody. I was yeah. just I was going up for a rebound, and I got knocked off my trajectory. So I came down on one leg awkwardly, right. and everything just went, you know. And um, I ended up having reconstructive knee surgery, mm. uh, and it was uh, at during that point um, on all those meds. I was watching a lot of basketball, and somehow the first song that I wrote when I kind of started working again was Game Winner. It was this weird, like, basketball love song. Mm. And um, I ended up making a, a whole EP that was kind of loosely basketball-themed, and it, it, it sort of was my basketball meets music, um, you know, the two most important things in my life, really, um, uh, as using it as therapy, mm. essentially. So it was kind of like a therapeutic project for me. Did that song start on the keyboard, or did you, or did you have the melody hook in your head? It started on the piano. It started yeah. with the first lyric. It started mm. with the verse. So it didn't. It 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 would kind of wrote itself in sequential order. Um, okay. And so it started with setting the scene, like fourth quarter. It's not over. Um, and then I, you know, like all good songs to me. <laughs> There was something about it in the middle where I was just like, this is a little too crazy. Like, this is a little too weird. Um, I mean, do you feel like romance and, and sort of old-fashioned love songs are your go-to mode? Or is it something that uh, you were paying homage to and then making your own uh, with a lot of these songs, especially on Inside Voice, your newest, they're just very openly, earnestly romantic. Yeah. You know? Uh, I had, you know, Inside Voice record on in the background in the last few days. Cool. And my wife is like, thought I was trying to, like, get us in the mood or something. <laughs> She's like, I, I'm going to go to work. What am I doing? <laughs> like, she was, like, confused why the music was on at, like, 8 a.m. And she was, like, put, like getting her hair ready. <laughs> I'm like no, I'm just oh, I'm just listening nice. to this. She's that's like, yeah, so but nice. what, I can't, not right now. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I I guess I do write about what I think about most, um, as I'm sure you do. I I I think about love a lot, I'm trying to process my experiences with love. Um, and then you know, it's it's also very easy to 
as you know as a songwriting tool to use love as a uh, as a metaphor for whatever it is you're writing about you can you know we could uh, we could talk about Los Angeles as a as a as a partner yeah you know we could talk about anything and just you know I I think about that often when I think of sometimes when I think about like Wilson Pickett or something Wilson mm-hmm. Pickett to me is like the greatest singer when it comes to singing like just the word love mm. because he just like he's so on fire with it and sometimes right. I just think like was he like thinking about like was he singing to his bank account like yeah. was he singing to something else you yeah. know it's a uh, but he transcends it. I, yeah. I, you know, I, I guess I don't know where I'm going with that, except that it is a very common thing as a songwriting tool to use love at, to talk about whatever. It could be a real relationship, and it can also be a relationship with something that's not a human. Some of the music that I think you love, you know, from the '70s that have these sort of soulful uh, hooks and just openly, unabashedly romantic vibes, right? It's, I think, something we've hidden from recently as, oh, it's cheesy, or oh, it's uh, saccharine, you know? And you have a lot of beautiful string arrangements, uh, Miguel Atwood Ferguson arranged, but there's a way that you can, that you do it where it harnesses whatever uh, beauty and, and lushness existed in those earlier recordings and feels like it could be playing in a car in any era you know and that's really hard to do oh i I appreciate that i i always uh just kind of go back to like how true does it feel um to sing Mm -hmm. uh when it comes to lyrics Mm -hmm. and without that like there's no hope for making anything i think the, the key for executing whatever style it is oftentimes. I mean, I wonder how you feel like, you know, as a producer, I'm always like, I, I keep coming back to like, well, is the fucking vocal there? Yeah. Because a lot of times that's kind of enough to get anything through. Mm-hmm. Truly. I, I, I keep noticing that. It's like if, if the vocal is there, then... You know, as long as you're being respectful, it's like not, I'm not, I'm not saying like, you know, that you can just like do anything. But I, I oftentimes do think that um, if a vocal is true, if you, if if something feels feels real or if there's substance within it and it and it, it has that vibe there, then it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, the contrast uh, between what you and the guys in Wolfpack do. You know, a lot of folks may know you as, you know, one of the collaborators in that crazy sure. Wolfpack experience. There is a difference, I think, between the sort of balls-out, goofy, loud, funk thing that they're doing and the much more almost private conversation that you're having with your listeners and your music. And really, you know, calling your record Inside Voice, I think, symbolizes maybe what you're trying to do on your own of saying, like... I'm only singing to you right now, and no one outside our little bubble can even hear us, which is maybe, you know, maybe the most romantic thing you can say to someone, you know, it's just (laughs) us, but do you feel like you have two personas, you know, your solo stuff versus the Wolfpack collaboration stuff, or is it all sort of mixed together? Well, the cool thing about Wolfpack is I don't have to be anybody else, you know what I mean? No, it's... 
Wolfpack is really the side project for everybody. Yeah. It, you know, ex- except for maybe Jack. Like, it's it's kind of strange how it worked out that way. It's sort of like this side project that's way more successful than any of our projects. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's like, it's this super group yeah. in a way. So it's like everybody comes together to do this thing and it's kind of a choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm. It's not like, and maybe that's why it's successful and why Jack is so brilliant because he puts just people in a position to a star in their role as uh, Dwight Howard is this year. You know, yeah. It's just like, I, I'm not going to try and be anything else. I mean, I, I'm, I have no qualms about, uh, like, I don't practice the saxophone. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just get to take it out for Wolfpack, and I'm glad that it works. Uh-huh. But I'm not a, a fucking saxophone player. Really, like, I am, but I'm not. You know what I mean? It's just like, well, I'm You're a pretty damn good sax player. I'm, thank you. I'm... But the pa- is, the, is the passion not there as your main instrument? No. Yeah. It's not. But, but Wolfpack, like, restored my uh, identity, my connection with it. Mm-hmm. You know, once I kind of found that my true and embraced my true love as a songwriter, and tried to apply it and see if I could do it, see if I could sing, see if I could do the things, um, I sort of came back to. I, I shied away. I got away from the saxophone, and um, didn't had was just like I'm I'm out of here. And then Jack was like, uh, "We got a session. Like, come through." I was like, okay, great. He's like, yeah, bring your sax, you know. Yeah. And I was like, okay, like cool. And I came through, and and uh, that's when uh, you know everything kind of changed for me because I was like, embraced this a more of a, a punk approach. Right. Luckily, I have enough technique that I can just take it out of the case and play it. I don't sound polished. Like I got my own thing with it, but now I'm just like very happy with where I am it's just a it's just a, a punk outlet and it's I try and just have it be an expression of of joy in the moment and you know I'm not fucking Chris Potter like I'm well cool with that but that's almost the interesting thing about Wolfpack and really you know when we met each other at University of Michigan there was an earlier you know iteration of Wolfpack and my dear disco right there's always this like super group thing percolating with you, Theo Katzman, and some of these guys. Uh, Tyler Duncan is sort of always in that orbit um, as this sort of semi-serious, super fun dance party vibe. Right. Right. But really, everyone then splitting off into seven directions and then coming back to form this unique puzzle and then splitting off into a million directions. Yeah. Do you think that will happen again with... with Wolfbeck, or is it sort of an evolving process? Because you guys all have your own sort of brilliant things that you're doing, but the irony is that this kind of goofy side project sold out Madison Square Garden a few months ago. It's amazing. Can you sing with us, New York? Oh, I've been thinking about you, baby. I mean that in itself that is a is a testament to to friendship and it's also a, a a testament to Jack Stratton who you know makes our jobs really easy like my job in Wolfpack is easy I'm just like 
I'm just out here along for the ride. And right. Jack has been curating this thing for seven years or nine years now? Nine years now. Has it been that um, long? In the 2011, um, I think. Wow. 2012. Um, and so in answer to your question, like there's no doubt about it that it's going to evolve. Yeah. Like, and, you know, nothing lasts forever. But it's... Um, Let me ask it, you this. If you could have a super group that you formed of any... Let's say five musicians, Ooh. dead or alive. Oh man, who would it be? Well, yeah, it's it's almost like I'd almost not want to play all the time. Yeah, I'd want to be more can... of a Quincy Jones yeah. character, like just stand up in front and dance. Yeah, and like you know maybe hype sit, man sit down, maybe like sit down and sing a song every now and then. Yeah. I mean. I would really have to mull this over. So what I'll I'll try and do is put together a band quickly, mostly utilizing like my top five. Okay. But then also, hopefully, it makes sense. Okay. Um, John Coltrane is my number one draft pick. All right. On the tenor saxophone and whatever else he wants to play, he'll play like um, yeah, sleigh bells too. He likes sleigh bells. Maybe you could have Soprano. Alice Coltrane too as like Ooh, sort of you know you just combo platter. You know. Since. Just Alice yeah. Coltrane on synths. Yeah, we'll, just, we'll, we'll lump them together. Oh, great. Oh, perfect. If I can get... Yeah. Oh, that's... Like, couples or... You know, you could do that. It's fine. That's that's great. I feel great <laughs> about that. Um, it's like the Lopez brothers on uh, <laughs> yeah. Milwaukee. I did not just compare John Coltrane to the Lopez brothers. Um, John Coltrane, Alice Coltrane. All right. Then I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with um, Bernard Purdy on the drums. Okay. He versatile um he could front the band if he needed to but he's also happy being back there he's done stuff with Wolfpack, right yes 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 we played with him we played with him uh a couple years back in new york and he's a completely one-of-a-kind musician the greatest drummer in the history of the world uh as far as pop music goes and he uh he, he claims to have played on the Beatles records. He's mm. he's like, <laughs> he's he's a trip. But um, all your favorite records have him on it, and the world loves his beat. Um, man, yeah, it's almost like you have the center and the forward are the what the bass and the drums. Like, how do you equate a basketball lineup with a band? I'm going with Prince. Okay, like going with Prince in the band because Prince is sort of like your your. Uh, you're Clay Thompson. You okay. know, he can he plays both sides of the ball. He uh, you know, Prince could, could get on bass for something, he can get on keys for something, right. he could front the band, do the entire show. I'm sure Train would be very happy being I, I feel like Train is actually like the defender, midfielder kind okay. of vibe. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's just he's just sprinkling like good he's like the Clarence Clemens of this okay. <laughs> of this situation. The Bill Russell. Yeah, sure, exactly, exactly, well said. I share a birthday with Bill Russell. Um, so we got three, right? Um, I talked to Bill Russell for three minutes in line no at the Starbucks in Detroit, in the Detroit airport. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is incredible. He just, like, stood in line towering over me at whatever, seven feet tall. He sort of, like, bent a little bit because he's now old. Man. But I, like... I always remember that I had that NBA greatest 50 players book Yeah. that I would always look through. And he, he had that picture of the, what do you have, 11 rings, you know, on his hands. Oh, my God. And I just, like, knew it was him. 
and I was like about to order like my mocha or something. I was like, hey man, uh. he's in my he's in my top three all time. Bill Russell, he's he's I think he's top top three. I love I love him so much. I'm really struggling with this with these next two. Um, right, who's but the, I, I want to get guard? it though. I want to get this. Um, I feel like I feel like more more rhythm. Like I feel like I want to draft Ayerto, like the percussionist on all those um, CTI records. Like someone who's just gonna come in and just also mm. just sprinkle more mm. and more rhythm mm. into the situation and, and make crazy sounds with his mouth. So we're going with Ayerto. I can't pronounce his last name. More more yet more yet. I can't remember. Mm. Ayerto, and then you know I feel like I feel like Paul McCartney. Like McCartney's also like the prince, mm. you know. You, you got he's they're sort of like the forwards, left forward, right forward. Right. Carney's for the very hooks. versatile, very versatile. Hooks for days. Oh my god, yeah. And you know, like if they were going instrumental, you you you, could, you play something tasteful. Like he's not going to be. Would you say crazy. that Paul is your favorite Beatle by far, or is I? They've all been favorite. That's a dangerous question. They've all been a favorite at some point. Yeah, right now my favorite's John. I was just watching the, uh, they they have like full takes from the um, from the Imagine sessions. Mm. You can watch just full. You go on YouTube. You can watch full takes mm-hmm. of these songs, and uh, um, it's beautiful. He doesn't doesn't take himself too seriously. Mm. He's just it's it's sort of a, I think, really inspiring to me as a set as a session player. Just to just watch the vibe in there. It's focused, but it's not overly serious you know you mentioned Quincy Jones earlier um, as you know maybe your role in this super group but you actually have met him right and and because he he sort of you know pinned you as one of his stars to watch yes this is very 2000 uh, 2020 but I've I've never gotten the chance to meet him oh okay well you know what I did meet him 2009 South by Southwest he gave a keynote talk and I shook his hand there you go um, never met him he um, but he did um, check out the music and sort of like gave his blessing he made a, a little private video that he sent me oh wow um, that uh you know was really really nice I, th- I, I think uh, you know his his role out there is as a is as a champion of the music, as an educator, and trying to lift up young young musicians. So mm. we've we've never met. I hope I hope to get the chance to meet him and talk with him at some point. Would he be your go to producer for the supergroup, or mm. or or maybe you could have a couple? One of my producers would be um, someone who I've worked with. Uh, on his music and he's we've worked on collaborating on music together his name is Maki mm. he lives on the top of this hill over there and uh it's convenient yep he uh I was a fan of his before I met him produced uh a bunch of the Feist records and Jamie Lydell um he did some of the songs on Inside Boys he did right? yeah. yep and we co-wrote some of the songs together and co-produced them he to me is uh one of my producer superheroes and yeah Quincy Jones I feel like Quincy just keeps it light in the studio. You know, that's mm. what I really appreciate about him. He's just like, he, uh, it's not always about the music. <laughs> it's always, well, it's always about the music, but it's not always about the notes. Mm. You know, it's like, it's about when to order dinner. You know, mm. it's about just like putting the right people in position to succeed. It's about the people you choose to be in the room and, and, uh, how you articulate 
uh, your message in a sort of like easy way that people can just get. I'm I'm not I'm more about the Magic Johnson school mm. of leadership instead of the Kobe Bryant school. Kobe's like the Phil Spector. Yeah, you know, <laughs> my dad is this like obsession with Phil Spector, like sitting in jail right now, like. But he should be producing people from jail. Wow. He's like, what if you, what if you like found Phil Spector, and like, like what is he doing? He's probably, he's probably like sitting there, like maybe he could like produce one of your songs. I was like, I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> I wouldn't if you're suggest like in that maximum for you, security yeah. <laughs> prison. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest that for anyone. This man is probably a sociopath. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't suggest. Yeah, but that like you do that. all these, I love this idea. Though. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I, I would be fine with like him having a garage band rig in there. Like he should make his own. His he should make his own music or make someone else's music in in the you know, in prison or something. I mean, so many things are happening right now on all mediums of art about trying to be able to separate the artist from their misdeeds. Kobe Bryant. Right. I mean. Uh, the you know this Kobe Bryant situation, obviously he's a hero to so many people in this town. Um, nobody's saying that he hasn't had his uh, ups and downs and some obviously the one very sinister thing that happened in Colorado. Um, this writer for the Washington Post tweeted the original article about the rape that happened and the actual police report and what this woman experienced yeah. and. The Washington Post suspended her. Wow. And she's gotten like 10,000 death threats. That's not right. And it was like, That's not right. now it maybe it was in poor taste right after he died. But she goes, I didn't write this. Yeah. I think people should know the full story. Because yeah. this was not a um, light thing. This woman was badly hurt. And, you know. She, is, she doesn't deserve that. Right. She doesn't de- deserve that. You know, it's like. It's a part of it's a part of his legacy. His legacy. Is there an artist that you love that you've had to struggle with separating those two things? I, I know no Michael longer, Jackson. I no or... longer listen to R. Kelly, yeah. and I listened to R. Kelly for a long time, and he was a huge songwriting inspiration for me. Hmm. Um, I, I, he's a, he's a genius, but, um, you know, things. Hopefully things are changing, man. I, I think for I think I support you know supported his music for too long. Yeah, it wasn't until maybe two three years ago. Well, we like stopped. we convince ourselves that sort of great men or women sort of you know have this immense power that you know things happen and who knows if these people they've hurt can be trusted. But I love their music so much that I'll convince myself that it's still okay. Yeah. You know, and eventually it's like this person destroyed people's lives. Yeah. They're also making hit songs, but eventually, like, you wouldn't support a family member who destroyed people's yeah. lives. You know? Yeah. Yeah. R-, R. Kelly, like, uh, like, within his music, it's like he left the clues there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, like, there were things that happened, uh, obviously, with his court case. Um, that were very public and and people went on supporting him, including myself. Like sort of just choosing to use a blind eye. What is that? I don't know, how would you say it? To smirp a blind eye. Yeah. Um, to the the situation, and it's that was not right. It's like it. I feel like it's different from 
now putting Miles Davis's music in the in the rearview mm. mirror and you know reading his autobiography and realizing that he he was a, t- a terrible person. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean James Brown too. James Brown. Yeah. Absolutely, but um that is now it is a part of their legacy. Yeah. And they made music that very much was probably the um the best parts of themselves. Right. You know, like it's probably the the parts of themselves that are that are sort of mostly unsullied by a lot of a lot of that evil. And mm-hmm. so um it's a it's a little different um uh, in those cases for me and I I think I think the this woman at the Washington Post completely has the right to be a reporter looking at this man's legacy in that way. Now, obviously it's a really sensitive situation and the thing that really makes us so fucked up is that his daughter died in this. Yeah. And that's that that's what sort of compounds this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, Kobe is such a, being such a public figure, important to so many people, um, he's liable to have his, his legacy uh, examined in mm-hmm. all the ways, and that's one of the ways, and it should be. Mm. In your music, it feels like there's a, also a undercurrent of nostalgia, but not in the way that it can be a trap, in a way of sort of like you were saying, of harnessing the best energy of a certain era, right? Because obviously, if we were to totally recreate what was happening in the 70s in music, there's a lot of darkness and a lot of, uh, you know, bad behavior there. But the sort of unabashed, soulful love songs that would come out, you know, this uh, song you have on Inside Voice, Don't Want It To Be Over, um, with, uh, was it Coco O? Yeah. Yeah. It felt like a Marvin Gaye song That's, that totally was just what we're trying to do. turned on the radio right now. Cool. With this white kid from LA. Right. doesn't feel weird it feels sort of natural and you guys have this light touch with your with your you know back and forth like, it's an homage that's right that track is an homage yeah i mean it fully if that that one was really trying to go for a marvin tammy thing and it started with the writing it totally just started with the writing and it was like let's write a duet and the amount of time that we just sort of like that maki and i maki and i wrote that song we the amount of time we just spent kind of listening to motown songs and being like what what is this magic in some of these hooks you yeah. know what is this what is this magic and oftentimes it's such a simple a simple thing what do you, you think know? is the magic that keeps motown playing on loop everywhere we go throughout the world it just feels like almost america's best self in a way just excellence just just excellence and humanity i mm. feel like you know it's like Nothing about it is overly perfect. The play, it's like the 
the playing is perfect, but it's greasy. Mm-hmm. And the singing is like from the church, but it's a, about like everyday life. Mm-hmm. And it's just the perfect combination of of things with with the you know the juju of Detroit, um, which has kind of continued over the years to just put out music that's changed the world. And it was also just like a super unique time with a being a being a black business um uh sort of harnessing this incredible fountain of artistry and and soulfulness and doing it in a way producing it in a way that racist white america had no choice but Mm. to embrace it it's like Mm -hmm. just it's like nah like this music they're going to demand this music. And then this next generation, they just demanded it, you know, and they, I mean, they changed the world doing that. That literally is something that, that, that changed the world in so many ways. Just that also with the reverb chamber too. Yeah. The reverb chamber school. It's funny. The, there was a part in your song, uh, in heaven where I think there's a, there's a, this piano, you know, on the low keys with, and, and the bass together. Yeah. It almost reminded me of something that could be in like Greece or like <laughs> sort of like classic right. totally. musical. That is a Greece. Uh, it is, yeah. Uh, but it's, and you're sort of like bobbing in your seat, you know, like snapping along. I never like, thought that. Like that's funny. Greasing that, back your hair. Yeah. Oh my God. That literally is the Grease baseline, isn't it? It's tell close, but it. Yeah. I just. But that, that's like such a hook in <laughs> that. Always makes me happy whenever I hear it. You know. That's cool. Um, it's a chord progression. I don't got to give you published. Yeah. So I have to confess, uh, towards the end of our conversation, my computer crashed. <laughs> and I was talking to Joey out in the sun, and it felt great. And then it all disappeared. And I actually thought this episode was completely gone for about a month and a half. And then I found it in some back door of the recording program. So I'm so glad we got to save it. So sorry for the crazy edits here. He's going to introduce the song that he's going to play, Grandma Song, right now. Um, Grandma Song is about my maternal grandmother. Um, She was born in Poland and... um, was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, she loved basketball. She loved Chicago. She loved Michael Jordan and the guy with the hair. Uh, she was awesome. She was just the best grandmother ever. And she was from a like a different planet, like the old country, pretty much. Take care of us 
prayed for Thor she loved And she did Pray for us Yes, she did Pray for those She loved But in this day The tradition Generation doing the same old thing over and over, over and over again. I can't understand till I think of her doing things a young boy can't understand, like speaking in Yiddish. Seeing my grandma walking outside with her right foot first, yeah. Oh, seeing my grandma doing things a young boy can't understand. But in this day, that tradition made. Doing the same old thing Over and over Over and over again I can't understand Till I think of her Doing things a young boy can't understand Like speaking in Yiddish Seeing my grandma walking outside with the right foot first, yeah. Oh, seeing my grandma fasten for the one she loved. Seeing my grandma doing things a young boy can't understand. There you have it, Mr. Joey Dosick. You can go to joeydosick.com for his music and his tour dates. Uh, he also has a new podcast called the Michael McBolton Basketball Podcast. You know what? If you like the Lakers and you like music, this is the podcast for you. And as a Clippers fan in my new adopted home, I was a bit offended by his new single, Lakers Town. But you know what? It's so catchy, I forgave him for it. Joey's newest full-length record is called Inside Voice. It's on Secretly Canadian Records. What a beautiful album, guys. 
transport yourself to another time and place, put it on, close your eyes, and you will feel much, much better about things. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to my band, Dust Bowl Revival's newest album, Is It You, Is It Me? It just came out at the end of January. I'm so proud of this thing. It's a orchestral rock and roll odyssey. We've never attempted anything like this. Go to dustbowlrevival.com, buy a vinyl, help a band in need. We love you, and we'll see you on the road soon, I hope. And last thing before I go, Dust Bowl Revival will be hosting a virtual music festival. Yes, April 17th through the 19th, we will be hosting the Sway at Home Fest right on our Facebook page. All the bands that we love in the world will be there. Well, not all of them, but many of them, including Birds of Chicago, Steve Poltz, Smoothhound Smith, Charlie Parr, Shook Twins. So many cool people will be coming. Check it out, dustbowlrevival.com for more. The show on the road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love the show on the road, please leave us a review or rating over at itunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The show on the road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. <laughs>